I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be discussing what is known as the Gwangju Uprising, the Gwangju Massacre in South Korea under the dictator Chan Duan, and the U.S. complicity in that historical tragedy. With returning guest journalist Tim Sharrock and first-time guest investigative journalist and documentarian in Jung Kim. If you're unfamiliar with In Jung Kim, who Tim graciously put me in contact with, she has a whole documentary on this subject called His Name Is from 2017. It essentially unravels the whole chain of events that led to the tragic casualties of hundreds of citizens in Gwangju, South Korea in 1980. In this conversation, we'll especially be focusing on the U.S. role in this tragedy and how it may well be time for the U.S. to reckon with that history. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. But first, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors. If you're living in California and looking for holistic therapy, then you can do no better than contacting Alexander Yu for his services. Alexander specializes in counseling for marriage and relationships, trauma, grief, PTSD, and LGBTIQ and gender issues. His approach is welcoming and all-embracing, and he even has experience as a reverend. So, if you're looking for someone to help with your spiritual needs as well, Alexander can do that, and he does not discriminate against any spiritual path. So, if it sounds like Alexander could help you, and you're living in California, please consider contacting him by email at alexanderyoo.com or by calling or texting 323-834-9828. Alexander Yu, Marriage and Family Therapist, California License Number 102886. And with that being said, let's get to the conversation with Tim Sharuk and In Jong Kim on the Gwangju Massacre, the dictator Chun Duwon, and the U.S. complicity in the Guangzhou tragedy. Welcome to Parallax Views, two guests I'm very excited to have on today. Uh, Returning guest, uh, Tim Shurok of 
many different publications over the years, but uh, lately he's been writing or contributing, I should say, to uh, Responsible Statecraft, one of our favorite publications here at Parallax Use, and also uh, first-time guest, In Jong Kim. Uh, both of you have written a really fascinating article uh, for Responsible Statecraft uh, about South Korea entitled, and hopefully I'm not botching the name too much here, but Chen uh, Du Won's uh, bloody Guangzhou legacy is America's problem too. That's from December 14th, 2021. And I just want to read the uh, sort of subheadline there. Upon his death, the time is right for Washington to reckon with its role in the South Korean dictator's brutal rise to power. So we're going to get into all of that today. Uh, but first, how is everyone doing? Very yeah, well. Great. Thank you. So. Yes. So in order to dive into this, I guess the first thing I have to ask about is uh, how did both of you become involved in reporting on uh, these issues, uh, including the uprisings and the events leading up to them and just uh, South Korea and, and North Korea in general? Well, I can start because I began before Injong did uh, on this, but I was, I was uh, in terms of reporting, I did anyway. Um, in 1980, I happened to be in graduate school working on a uh, master's thesis about South Korean politics and particularly the politics of the labor movement in Korea at the time. And uh, as I was, you know, as I was uh, conducting my course of study and following what was going on in Korea, there was a, a real upsurge of uh, pro-democracy uh, movement in, in the South because under Park Chung-hee, who was the dictator for many years, uh, by the end of the 70s, uh, his dictatorship was, was uh, people were just really fed up. It was such a cruel, cruel authoritarian state. And, and he was assassinated in October 1979 by the head of his own CIA. And uh, so I was watching this very carefully. And then as the events over the spring after he was killed, uh, there was kind of this big upsurge in, in pro-democracy demands and protests from all segments of Korean society, uh, but you know, led a lot by students and by working class labor unions, people trying to organize unions. And uh, there was many, you know, thousands of people in the streets in the spring of 1980. And then uh, there was martial law declared. And then suddenly there was this military clampdown and there was some stories that came out in the press, but brief stories really about a massacre that had happened in the city of Gwangju in the Southwest. And uh, so I first heard about it right after it happened and was very, kind of, you know, concerned because the U.S. seemed to, the U.S., you know, sent soldier, soldiers under the U.S.-Korean command to, uh, to, to help uh, Chun Doo-hwan, the dictator who declared martial law, to put down this citizen uprising. Many people were killed, and it was shocking uh, that this could happen. And I had lived in Korea as a kid, during a revolution in 1960. And so I understood you know, a bit about the politics. So that was the first I heard about Gwangju. And then 
uh, I went there for the first time in 1981 and I met uh, some of the first uh, witnesses I ever, I ever encountered. Uh, and then I went there again in 1985 and met, met many more. So uh, I've been reporting on it, you know, basically since, since then. And I'll let, you know, Inchong tell her story. And, and before we do that, I, I just wanted to say, I'm going to have to watch um, Inchong's uh, documentary about this subject. I believe it's called His Name Is from 2017. And you also have another documentary, uh, Candlelight Movement, and you deal with uh, a lot of issues pertaining to social movements in these documentaries, but I'll let you explain that. Okay, yeah, so yeah, my bit was social movement and still I'm very interested about those kind of issue. Um, and about the Guangzhou uprising, uh, there are two reasons why I did this. So for one, after college, I got hired as a staff reporter by a public broadcasting company in Guangzhou, where I was in the in-house Guangzhou uprising big reporter. And Guangzhou is my hometown as well. And although this massacre happened 40 years ago, uh, it's still very, um, very vivid for the people of Guangzhou. In um, that broadcasting company, uh, there was always someone responsible for covering um, new revealance related to this event. So I held this role for eight years. And at first, it was mostly a matter of upholding the status quo, like um, commemorating memor the massacre every year on its anniversary. But whenever I met the survivors, I felt how much uh, this event was still present for them. So I started investigating who gave the order to fire the civilian at the time. And it was almost impossible because John Duhuang um, just deleted all the evidence about the massacre. So I decided to move to the US um, for business reporting and then found some really crucial memo about the Guangzhou uprising related to White House decision about that. And that reporting is related to Tim Sherrod's reporting. So uh, at that point, we were collaborating. And um, on a more personal note, I was born five years after the Guangzhou uprising. So I didn't experience it myself, but my parents were university students at the time and students were targeted by the military dictatorship and threatened very violently. So my parents had to learn a way and I wouldn't have been born if my parents hadn't decided to learn. So I've always felt a kind of secondhand survivor's guilt. So that is why I'm investigating this. So I want to get into describing the period of political unrest uh, leading to uh, Chen Du Wan's uh, emergence. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask Tim too, if this is okay. A, a lot of this is very disturbing sort of uh, historical uh, events. And it reminds me a lot of uh, speaking with uh, various experts on Indonesia about, say, the uh, the overthrow of Sukarno uh, in, in the U.S. backed coup uh, with Suharto. And I'm wondering, do you see parallels to other events uh, when it comes to this political unrest that, that led to Chan Tu Huan's emergence? Well, I, I would go back to the period in the late 40s before the Korean War 
began officially when the U.S. had not only occupied Southern Korea, but also had ruled through a direct U.S. Army military government. And the, the, almost immediately from the day U.S. forces occupied uh, South, so, you know, Southern Korea, uh, there, was, there was, you know, people began to resist the U.S. occupation because they immediately, they kept a lot of the, the not only did they keep, you know, pro-Japanese, you know, Korea had been a colony for 40 years under Japanese, Japanese rule. And so the U.S. kept many at the first few days, first few weeks. They even kept the Japanese police in in charge of, in South Korea, in charge of security. Uh, they they and then they they kept all these people, Koreans who had collaborated with the Japanese in power as well. And they 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 created a government uh, of very right wing, you know, landowners, uh, extreme anti communists. And meanwhile, there was this really strong uh, movement of people that wanted an independent Korea. In fact, there was a, a, a throughout the country, there had been, uh, a, you know, a people's government had been formed and the U.S. just refused to recognize this and, and uh, began to move against any of these, you know, anti-colonial, uh, organizers. And so there was in the late 40s and, you know, the very beginning of the Korean War, there was mass violence on the scale that was in Indonesia much later. Anti-communist violence, you know, like thousands, tens of thousands of people, civilian people rounded up on suspected being of communists and killed and murdered. And and so that that's a very dark period that's been unearthed in the last 40 years or so. Uh, so, you know, but but like, you know, Chun Duan, you know, came to power on his own. I mean, he shot his way to control the Korean military after Park Chung-hee was assassinated. And the U.S. was not happy with some of the ways he took over. But the U.S. had just uh, kind of reorganized the U.S.-South Korean military alliance and strengthened the military alliance. And so, the Pentagon was very invested in the Korean military at the time, even though there was this split within the Korean military, uh, they, they just felt like, you know, they had to go with the military. And they also felt overall that the Korean military was the only uh, element in society that could, you know, unite the society at the time. And so for various, you know, reasons, you know, national security interests, U.S. military position in Northeast Asia, uh, you know, they, they, they sided with the military. And then is there anything uh, that my listeners should know, uh, or maybe you could give us an outline of who this leader was, uh, Chun Tu Wan, and, you know, his sort of style of, of, of governance and why maybe, uh, I feel like a lot of uh, American audiences may be unfamiliar with his name. Yeah, so... How can I explain this notorious dictator in South Korea? So yeah, so he's the military coup leader and um, the professor Chung Wang Ho once said that that uh, coup d'etat is, this might have been the longest coup d'etat in the world history because there is a step of that, about that. So one is he seized the power after the Pax 
assassination, and then there was Kwangjo uprising, and that made people silent before he got the got his presidency regime, and then uh, he was elected. And the very surprising thing, but not at the same time, not very surprising fact is when Chen Duhan organized so-called election after seizing power, he owned by 99% of election. Um, because consider the fact that um, he and his forces has made clear to the civil, civilian population that opposition and dissent would be met with extreme violence. So it is not that um, surprising. And we cannot call this um, democratic way to be uh, president. So yeah, and after the eight years, um, you know, his way of um, seizing power is just as it is. So uh, we had the Guangzhou uprising, and after that, there were so many people were tortured and sometimes arrested once they just oppose him. So that was his way. If your team can add something with that. Yeah, he, he, he emerged from a group of military officers that had been very close to the previous president who was assassinated. And in fact, he was the head of the Defense Security Command, which was basically, you know, the, the, the military intelligence. Uh, and his, his when Pak was assassinated, he was he was the one investigating the assassination. And so when Injung said, you know, he took over the military in December 12, 1979, he actually shot his way to control of the Korean military by moving troops without, you know, from the U.S. Joint Command with the with U.S. South Korea Joint Command, he moved troops from the DMZ that are supposed to be guarding against North Korean invasion. He moved some troops from there to attack his own military. And um, that's the way he took over control of the Korean military. And so, you know, like the professor in John quoted, you know, call it the longest coup in history. In my original articles about the US role, I called it a rolling coup. And it was very unusual because he first took over the, the military and then a few months later, he took over the CIA, the Korean CIA, which was a massive, massive organization. It's hard to even you know, describe how much it permeated Korean life at the time. And so he took over these you know, two key institutions of control. And then his third step was taking over the government completely and abolishing the uh, National Assembly, the elected National Assembly, and just sort of, you know, then it was a military uh, style a junta that ruled for a while. And then the U.S. kind of like gave him the green light to accede to the presidency. And it was a very manipulated, manipulated vote. I was actually there in 1981 when this so-called election took place. And like it wasn't like, you know, Chun was running against another candidate. You had to vote for electors for some, you know, for him. And so a lot of people were very confused about even the election itself, like, who are we voting for? And, uh, and it, but that's how he took, you know, officially took control of the presidency. And then, you know, as Injong said, like, you know, his first year or two, they rounded up thousands of people, put them in, you know, camps 
to supposedly re-educate them and people were tortured and, and, and you know, treated brutally there. Uh, and so he created this atmosphere of like, people were really afraid. When I was there in the early eighties, 81 and 83 and 84, people were, you know, it, it was very difficult to organize openly to do anything. Cause there was this, you know, cause he had murdered all these people at Kwangju and showed that he could just, he'll, you know, if you, if you take action against him, he'll just slaughter you in the streets. And so, you know, that, that's a pretty, you know, pretty dampens political activity. But over time, you know, the, and the democratic movement grew. And, uh, you know, by the end of the 80s, the, the, even as I wrote in that, as we wrote in that article, the CIA could see, you know, they could understand that Chun was very unpopular even within the military. Uh, and that there's no chance of, of him uh, you know, being a, for the CIA, the problem was, you know, this is a bad U.S. ally uh, because he's so unpopular. Uh, so they, you know, when there was this massive movement to have one person vote for, you know, uh, for president uh, and, and have direct, direct democracy, uh, he almost, he almost wanted to, he almost pulled another coup in 1987. But by that time, the Reagan administration was, you know, knew that this would lead to further, you know, unrest and and uh, crack the society open even more. And so uh, they urged him to to step down and, or, you know, step down as permanent president. And uh, and then, you know, then uh, that's what happened. And there was direct elections, and uh, you know, over time, you know. Finally, you know, eventually in the late 90s, uh, the progressive leader during the 80s, uh, Kim Dae-jung, uh, was elected president. And Kim, I, I know that uh, Tim sort of covered the, the U.S. role in all of this a bit, but I, I know your documentary deals with that a bit as well, or that you've uh, done your own research into this. So could you talk about the, the U.S. in relation to all of this or... Yeah, so uh, Tim's uh, reporting about the charity file is revealed about um, how the United States was aware of key details about the massacre in Guangzhou. But um, my reporting is kind of related with that. So um, in, in a White House meeting on May 22nd, only 30, uh, three hours later, um, after the massacre, the Qatar administration decided to approve further use of force by its Korean military allies to retake the city of Gwangju. That's the uh, reporting from team. And after that, I found another memo written by the one White House officer. Um, and he was the participant of about this PRC meeting and a former top Pentagon officer then serving on the NSC. Um, so in this memo, uh, there was a lot of um, amazing and really heartbreaking details because the US government um, insisted that they didn't know about the details about Gwangju Rising and Gwangju Massacre, but it, it was a lie. Because in the memo, um, he was uh, he made some handwritten memo during the that uh, specific meeting, and in this memo there is a line that uh, the U.S. government already knew that C 
60 people in Guangzhou had been shot to kill and over 400 injured just 20 hours earlier, 24 hours earlier. And then Chen was directly responsible. They already uh, knew that. But, but they decided, um, they, they said that um, the Chen used power, military power very well. And he's a strong man. And also he's the Koreans will be followed the winner. So if um, Chen will be go to the blue house, which is a white house in South Korea, they should just take him. That was their decision because um, they only care about the threat from the North Korea and also the maybe this can be a second Iran um, if and it was right before the re-election, uh, the president's re-election in the U.S. So Qatar is preparing for the re-election. So they uh, decided that um, it can be very risky if they just, you know, intervene um, about the Chun's uh, power emerging. So they they just decided, wow, this strong man is here, and then maybe uh, South Korean people will follow the winner. So we can support him in a short time. But they said that in a short time, but it was eight years. In eight years, um, there was a, you know, after the Park's assassination, there was a, some chance, very short chance that we can, you know, retake our democracy, but we lost that chance because of the, you know, partially because of the U.S. decision, I think. And, and you know, it's a, the, the, the sequence of events here was that, you know, the, the U.S. early in May 1980, there are these massive demonstrations in Seoul and other cities calling on the government at the time to restore democratic rights that had been taken away by Park Chung-hee. Massive demonstrations. These are the kind of demonstrations that In Jung's parents would have been in. And uh, in, I mean, involving like, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And this was causing, you know, for the, from the US official and South Korean official perspective, this was causing, you know, problems with bankers, you know, bankers were kind of going, what's going on in Korea here? Uh, you know, we're, 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 is there gonna be another military coup? And, and so the US was, was trying to, you know, kind of uh, create some kind of, what they felt was stability. And so they informed Chun before Kwangju happened, before he even declared martial law, they, they informed Chun in meetings that the U.S. would not object if he used military forces against these big demonstrations. They were student, mostly led by students, and they were not doing any violence. And in fact, at one point, the students called off their demonstrations and said they would wait for the parliament, the National Assembly, to kind of come up with some kind of new legislation. And it was at that point uh, that, that, and so they, you know, so Chun did deploy military forces uh, at that time. And, but then, um, th th then he, on, on May 17, 1980, he, he declared martial law and it was the next day. And, you know, people in other cities, you know, they were kind of terrorized by this martial law. I mean, they sent, you know, special warfare command troops all over to occupy universities and 
arrested, you know, many people that those that day and the next day. And, but in Guangzhou city, people kept demonstrating. And uh, when they tried to push out of the university grounds, this university called Chonam University in Guangzhou, uh, that's where Chun deployed these paratroopers, these special forces. And when the, when, when the army thought that the special, that the police were not controlling the demonstrations, the army moved in and just began to slaughter people, literally slaughter people, stomping them to death, stabbing them with bayonets. And of course, this caused the whole city to, you know, their brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and mothers were being slaughtered in front of them. And, and so people began to fill the streets every day. And, and it, was on, it was May 18th that it began. And then on May 21, there was hundreds of thousands of people were gathered, had kind of cornered the military paratroopers that were still in the city center. And they were just demonstrating. They weren't, they weren't you know, people were, had been kind of fighting back, but mostly it was just people in the streets shouting, you know, get Chunduan, get out. Uh, we want democracy. And then suddenly they knelt down and just in methodical fashion, open fire. And that firing went on for several hours. And that's what we call the Guangzhou massacre. That, and that was what, you know, that day in front of the provincial building, 60 people were shot to death. And the, that's what Injong was saying. So then like in this meeting that happened 36 hours later at the White House, they knew that 60 people had been shot just the day before and that Chun was responsible for all the violence that had taken place, yet they still agreed to use, to, to lend US uh, surveillance planes and they sent, an air, there was an aircraft carrier, US aircraft carrier off the coast. They coordinated with Chun the, the military operation to crush the opera uprising because what happened in the uprising was after people were shot to death, people went to nearby towns and started seizing these old guns and rifles that were stored uh, in police stations and armories. And they began to use these weapons uh, to shoot back at the Korean army that was in the city. And so they created a citizen's army and during the days that the city uh, was, was the, after they pushed out, the army withdrew and then the city was, was run, in it, they, this, they ran the city themselves. And uh, the, you know, it, was, it was functioning fine. People were feeding each other and bringing water to each other. And you know, it, was, it was a mass meetings every day. And um, the citizen army, uh, there was a group of citizens that wanted to negotiate and they negotiated a little bit with the Korean military, but it went, didn't go anywhere. And then they tried to get the US ambassador to intercede, but he refused uh, on orders of the US government. But, but by the time he was asked to uh, mediate or meet with them, already the Chunduan's troops were on the march already to, take, to retake the city. And U.S. you know uh, planes 
and ships were all ready to coordinate with this movement. And uh, the, one of the things that we also discovered was that the US had contingency plans to bring in much more, many more US troops because if Shanduan could not control, if the, if the uprising went beyond Guangzhou and went to you know, other cities like Seoul, they didn't think Shanduan's army could control it. So they were ready to bring in more troops, American troops. And so they were very relieved when, you know, Shun's forces, you know, took the city. And, you know, they, they, they always said, oh, you know, very, you know, very few people were killed, but actually quite a few people were killed. And after the U.S., after the Korean army took Kwangju City, uh, they just rounded up hundreds and hundreds of people and threw them in these military camps. And now a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slamdance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. I know I didn't bring this up in in uh, my notes and, and I should have, but this is still an issue that, I mean, it's really kind of sad that there's, I guess, elements of the far right that seek to uh, deny or, or discredit uh, what happened in, in Guangzhou. That's my understanding, at least. Could you speak to that a, a bit, Tim? I, I think there's been people that have tried to say it was all North Korea or it was communist sympathizers. And there's really this attempt to deny the reality of what happened in some ways. Actually, I think Injong is better on that than me. You, she, she, she's reported on all this kind of stuff. So, um, sorry about. Um, can you rephrase the question again? Like you know, the, the right wingers who were saying you know that North oh, Korean troops were there, and you know, is there were six hundred North Korean officers there, and so on. That's a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and the, in the memo we found in uh, in New York in the former NSC officer. Um, in that memo, uh, there are a lot of evidence about the North Korea was not in involved with Gwangju uprising at all. And in the memo, uh, U.S. CIA um, just observed about the. North Korea's movement, and they reported that um, there is no movement from the North Korea. That is in the you know in the PRC meeting in the White House right after massacre. So that is very clear evidence that North Korea is wasn't involved in Gwangju uprising at all. And this is really um, inserting fact that the uh, rightist right wing people are still want to disgrace about those kind of Guangzhou rising because it's, it's kind of sad because um, they want to um, they want to just um, make this Guangzhou rising as not Chen Duan's fault because Chen Duan's regime is kind of the basement of their um, you know their all um, how can I say this um, they want to find some reason why they are exist in South Korea and Chun's regime is one of that. And if they uh, um they just um agree about what happened in Gwangju actually and if they just accept the fact about the Gwangju and they I think they assume that maybe there will be kind of a huge you know loss about the their basement of, about why they are existing in Korea. So that is why they are still um, make this uh, as a Gwangju people's fault, and they make this with weird, you know, theory about North Korea is um, involved with Gwangju uprising, and Gwangju people were so maybe violent about the military military coup. But you know, um, let's think about this. So they are as a citizen, and citizens are not trained for the war, but. You know, there were a lot of citizens in Guangzhou, but there were special forces to train for the guerrilla war. And how come it's said that this is the fair, um, fair? So we cannot call it fair. And also, uh, given the many, many evidence that um, there are Guangzhou citizens were, they, they were armed, they were armed, but they were not professional. So that is why they, just killed and murdered by the military coup. And then many people will die. They are murdered. But um, still the right-wing people are really want to believe that, they want to believe that uh, they are not Chun fault and just Guangzhou people's fault. It's an attempt to just completely discredit the mm -hmm. Guangzhou democracy movement. It, it seems like it's driven by a sort of, uh, I mean, if you will, uh, it sounds like this; these right-wing elements are pushing a conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Well, basically, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. completely false. Completely false. I mean, it's like uh, I remember the first one time I was visiting Guangzhou, and this may have been the first time I met Injong, uh, was in 2015, and this is when this, you know, right-wing theory was was being promoted very heavily. And mm -hmm. I was at this press conference sponsored by the the city of Guangzhou 
And, um, and then suddenly people started asking me about, you know, was North Korea involved? Some right wingers say it was. And I'm like, my, my initial response was like, well, you know, like Injong said at that time, the, the, you know, the report that, that she found from the NSC and then other reports I had found earlier, the U.S. itself said, even U.S. intelligence said there's no unusual North Korean true movements, et cetera. No, no North Korean involvement. And, you know, what I often pointed out to my audiences there was that South Korea is the most surveilled you know, area of the world by the U.S. I mean, the DMZ is watched by satellites, you know, surveillance planes. 24-7, they watch everything there. And if there was any movement of North Koreans south of the DMZ into Korea, they, you know, that would be picked up. But this these right-wingers, there's this one guy that claims there were 600 North Korean officers in Gwangju. And he has, I mean, they even have pictures of some of the, you know, Citizens Army guys that were holding, you know, guns and stuff. And they have a close-up of their picture and then they'll have a close a picture of some North Korean officer that they found on the internet. And they'll say, see the bone structures the same. These are the same guys, completely fraudulent. But there's these people that want to cling to this idea that, you know, Chun Doo-wan was some great, you know, savior of the, of the South Korean nation at a time when these, you know, leftist rebels were trying to take over in Gwangju. And it's it's just a it's just a complete fantasy. But you know there is this really virulent you know right wing in South Korea. So you know some of them are just fanatically attached to this, and they don't like the fact that Gwangju has a national cemetery honoring the Democratic People's Uprising, and they honor the Citizens Army at the national cemetery. There's all kinds of you know statues and and re reproductions of this of this army this just ragtag army of you know kids and you know gangsters and you know just all local people that just said we're not taking this anymore and uh you know that's what's kind of so sad about it it was just, you know very very you know from the heart of the city people rose up and uh for these people to try to repudiate it and, and denigrate it like this is just disgraceful. And, they, and it's, what's even more disgraceful is that there's Americans that are, will, you know, follow that line. And that I, I you, actually wanted to ask you about that next, Tim. Um, and then I want to get into maybe uh, some of the survivors of, of Chun's legacy. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you, do you think that American audiences uh, may not be familiar with this just because of the American role and because of other geopolitical um, stakes in, in talking about all of this? Because I feel like it's something that we should talk about more. Well, it certainly is uh, since we've been there since 1945, basically. And we have still have 28,500 you know, troops there and have a massive base. Uh, the largest US military base in the world outside of the United States is in South Korea. Uh, called Camp Humphrey. It's, you know, it's so we have a massive presence there and have been, have for years and years. And I think part of it is that the American press, you know, pretty much takes the Cold War view. They, they see, you know, 
they just look at through the Cold War lens of that, you know, like, the, like they, they don't see, you know, like for them, Korea began in 1950 when the North Korean army went across the 38th parallel and, and tried to, you know, invade South Korea. They don't, they don't understand. There's no reporting hardly. There's very little writing about what happened in the period before that. And like I said, that was mass killing at, at certain point. It was a counterinsurgency war. And I call it the first US counterinsurgency war after World War II was in South Korea. And like, there's a very infamous uh, incident called the, the Jeju uprising, which happened in around 1948 before the official start of the Korean War where the, the province of Jeju, which is the largest island in Korea, rebelled against the US military government and the, and the, and the South Korean government, right-wing government they had installed and the pro-Japanese police force on their island. And the US led a, a terrible counterinsurgency war there that killed about a third of the island. At least 30,000 people were killed in that Jeju uprising. And, some people estimate it as much more. And so this history is completely hidden from American, most Americans. And in Korea, because there was no democracy until the people fought for it in the late 80s, only then could this history be re resurrected because in, until the late 80s and really the early 90s, when you know people started digging into the truth of their history since 1945, people did not know what had happened in Jeju. People did not know about, uh, you know, the mass violence that took place about this counterinsurgency, uh, you know, so it was only in the 90s and the 2000s that people began to learn about it. You know, one, one of the South Korean governments under No Mu Hyun had, there was a, there was a reconciliation committee and they looked into you know, massacres by all sides during the Korean War. And they found you know, many, I mean, there was some North Korean massacres of civilians, but they found many more examples in the South of you know, Korean um, military and right-wing groups massacring people. And US also mass looking, you know, the US also uh, ma massacring people. And so, you know, it, it's it, for many Koreans, it's a kind of new, new, you know, recent history. And it's just, you know, Mar American reporters in Korea and lots of American reporters here that cover Asia and, you know, Korea, they don't, they don't know this and they don't, they just see that, you know, the U.S. saved South Korea, you know, and many, uh, I, I was that's just all they see. I was just going to say, for me, like I like I sort of alluded to earlier, there's many shades and many parallels I'm seeing uh, between all of this and and what someone like Vincent Bevins talks about in in the Jakarta method. So uh, a lot of parallels and a lot of yeah, what I think we realize about the Cold War if we look deeply into it. In terms of the survivors and the victims of this bloody legacy uh, that Chun Huan. Uh, you know, is is responsible for in so many ways. Uh, could you guys speak to uh, some of the survivors and the victims of all of this? I, I don't know if Kim, you want to take the lead on that, or or Tim. No, you should, Jin Jong, because 
Talk about Lee, who you wrote about. Yeah. So before I talk about Lee, I want to uh, make some general talk about this. So there are so many victims in Gwangju. In, in Korea, we hold a memorial service annually to remember those who have passed away. We call it Tesa. And in Gwangju in May, Practically every household has memorial services because so many people lost a parents, a spouse, a relative, or a child. And when I was younger, uh, a lot of my friends' parents were missing arms or legs. And I always wondered why there were so many parents with disabilities in our town. But I later found out it was because they were victims of Guangzhou uprising. And that is because of Chen Duhuan. And this November, uh, only hours before Chen Duhuan died, one of the survivors, Li Guangyong, took his own life. And uh, he's not the first one. He is, um, uh, Li was the 46th survivor to die by suicide. And Li volunteered for the Red Cross at the moment because he wants to save the victims and casualties, but he just shot by some of the military. So he was shot in the spin and paralyzed from the waist down. And yeah, and because of his suffering, he decided to took his life. So that is really sad, but this is not very surprising because there are so many other Li Guangyong in Guangzhou and there are mental anguish and physical suffering, family breakdown and bankruptcies because they couldn't find any job because of their mental health or physical health. So because of that, that has um, deepened the depression for many survivors. And um, women who, who were sexually assaulted by soldier have suffered mental breakdowns as well. So when I interviewed the survivors, many couldn't help but cry whenever they talk about their memories of that time. That is not their first interview, but they interview with many journalists, like, you know, every year, every time, especially in May, but every time they couldn't help but cry. So the survivors of the Guangzhou massacre have been left to wrestle with enduring pain. And this trauma is still very much alive 41 years later. Yeah, Lee had joined the Red Cross and he was trying to help victims. And uh, he saved quite a few and helped quite a few. And then he himself was shot. And, you know, he's kind of emblematic of many of the survivors, people that went through this terrible few days. Uh, but you can imagine people that went through that trauma and then having their, their, what the, you know, how they fought back against this vicious attack, you know, you know, denigrated as, you know, some kind of, you know, North Korean led uprising when it had nothing to do with North Korea, it had to do with, you know, violence inflicted upon their people. And so it's just, you know, I remember being there, uh, just before the current president took over, Moon Jae-in, when he was, he was elected in 2017. And he had been, Moon Jae-in had been an activist during the 70s and 80s. So he's very well aware of you know, what happened in Guangzhou. But the year before he was elected, uh, I had been in, I was in Guangzhou at, at uh, I was invited with some other journalists who had been there during the uprising. 
and that the memorial at the at the at the uh, cemetery that Injung was talking about, uh, where the service is, uh, some of the representatives of the very conservative Korean government at the time were at the cemetery. And one of them, there's a very famous song about the uprising. Uh, it's, is it correct to call it the hymn of the beloved, uh, Injong? The song of the beloved, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very famous song and they, they sing it in Gwangju with fists high and it's a, it's a really, people really feel the emotion. But like the right-wingers in the Korean government at the time were saying it was an anthem about Kim Il-sung in North Korea as a pro-North Korean anthem. It's just, you know, it's kind of, it's just insulting. And so at the cemetery, when this, the man who called it a North pro-North Korean song, he was surrounded by family uh, survivors and, you know, uh, mothers of, who had lost their children. And they were just screaming at this guy and they pushed him out of the cemetery. I mean, you know, there's, there's so much anger. This trauma is often, or, you know, right on this, right, right in the, sur on the surface there. And it's, you know, it's just something that's very hard to, very hard to overcome. So before we close out here, what do both of you think the key issues that maybe uh, Americans miss in speaking about um, South Korea and this history we've spoken about? Because I, I think it's important that we shine a light on it. Uh, so I have a short opinion about this. So maybe Tim has a lot of opinion about this, I believe. So maybe I can talk a little and then maybe Tim will be at it. Is it okay? Yeah. Okay. So um, the vision of the Korean peninsula into North and South is part of the legacy of the Cold War, as Tim said. And so on the peninsula, the uh, Cold War never really ended. And when U.S. intervenes in other countries, it always considers and serves its own interests and in doing so. So I think Americans often forget the history behind the split and focus on North Korea's nuclear weapons program or describing Kim Jong-un as a monster in the media and comparing that to South Korea as a successful experiment in democracy and capitalism in Asia. And I do agree that the issue of human rights in North Korea is a major humanitarian concern. I do agree that. But when I look back at what happened in 1950, I think that the current situation on the peninsula is the result of the Cold War libraries and great power interests. So we saw with Kwangju rising how when powerful countries like the US prioritize their own security interests over human rights, a lot of people will suffer and, but it will end up um, getting rationalized away as a necessary evil and the cost of getting ahead in the great power competition. And when I just um, thought about the Afghanistan and also drone attack, the wrong drone attack, and this is um, maybe this is a symbolic, but I, I think it's very similar to Guangzhou rising at some point because um, U.S. only focus about the U.S. own security interests, and then many people killed and murdered by that because of systemic error, I think. I just wanted to add to that too, and then I'll I'll let Tim take it from there. But I 
I was having a conversation with uh, one of my friends recently about about doing this episode and, and talking about all these issues. And they were, you know, I, I was surprised they were completely unaware of uh, who Chandu Wan was. And they kept going back to uh, North Korea until I sort of explained all of this to them. So I feel that it's very sad that we, you know, a lot of Americans don't even know that, you know, this this was a a dictator. This was iron fisted rule that, that Chandu Wan engaged in. Um, and I, I'll let you go from there, Tim. Well, you know, part of the reason is that, you know, Korea would be reported in the U.S. media, you know, just every, you know, it basically in the 80s, uh, you know, every couple of weeks or so, there'd be, you know, sh brief shots on television of, you know, students battling, you know, armored vehicles in the streets of Seoul and lots of tear gas. And, but there was just no, you know, in-depth coverage at all about what was going on on the ground. And, uh, and th th that the same was true in, you know, 1980, the coverage was all, you know, through the lens of, of Cold War. And, and so uh, it, 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 there's just no, no depth to it. And, and so uh, during the 80s, when, the, when, you know, especially in the late 80s, when there was many, many, you know, people on the streets and in Korea demanding, dem demanding democracy, uh, some of the US media reports at the time were just, just incredibly, they were, they were terrible. Like, you know, uh, for example, uh, there was a Rolling Stone reporter. Uh, uh, he's like a humorist, right? P.J. Rourke. He did this cover story in 1988, I think it was. That was just horrendous racist depiction. Like he, he, he wrote this story about, you know, making fun of the Korean structure of their faces and their kimchi breath and their garlic breath and, and just the, how they, they all seem like rigid, you know, communist in North Korea, these people that were in the streets of Seoul demanding democracy, just this racist, you know, put down of, 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 of South Koreans. And, and, you know, the way the American officials talk about South Korea, they really talk about it like it's their little colony to boss around, you know? Real, and, real and quick there. Uh, the not, media adopts that view. Not to interrupt you, but that was one telling part of the article. Uh, I'm always interested whenever uh, Shibignu Brzezinski comes up in, in an article I'm reading. And, and you know, Brzezinski's a, a fascinating character when it comes to foreign policy history. But, you know, he even commented on what was going on uh, with all of this and said, you know, in the short term, we we, we we provide support. In the longer term, we we pressure for political evolution. And of course, uh, political evolution never really came in, in, in this oh. case. Yeah, it was just this hard-nosed calculation, you know, what, what, you know, this is our interest. So it's in our interest that Chun take over. And like, you know, like Injong was saying, they, they acted like, you know, Korean people will just go along with whoever the strong man is, right? There was a famous comment by the U.S. general at the time, who was the U.S. commander of all forces in Korea, uh, General Wickham, uh, who, who said, you know, Koreans are just like lemmings. They'll just follow any military strongman off the cliff, right? So it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't, we don't really have to be concerned with human rights or democracy because they'll just follow the strongman. And that was just a huge, big lie. But when he said that, that infuriated people in Korea 
And, and, and you know, the, the thing that to me is really sad is that the way that American officials talked about South Korea in the 1940s is the same way they talk about it now. You know, it's just like this subservient, you know, ally that should just do whatever the U.S. wants to do. And, uh, you know, there people were attacking Moon Jae-in when he became president, were red baiting him as a pro-North Korean or, you know, uh, you know, anti-U.S. figure from the moment he was elected. And, and they, they just, there's a, there's a refusal to understand the political dynamic of South Korea. And there's a refusal to recognize the, 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 the Cold War dynamic of what led to the, the split of Korea into two permanent split and the Korean War. Uh, you know, but, but uh, I place most of the blame on the, on the US because you know, we're the ones who refused to recognize a people's government there in 1945. The Soviet Union for its own reasons sided with these people's government that was also in Northern Korea because it was led mostly by communists because the communists and leftists had led the fight against Japanese colonialism. And, but the US saw anyone that was anti-colonial in Korea as red. And, and that was from the very beginning. And so, you know, they delegitimize any Korean, you know, movement inside South Korea for, you know, you know it's, if, if Koreans, South Koreans wanna have a, you know, socialist state, that's their right, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not us to tell them what to do, but to the US, they have to stay on the, you know, we helped them, we saved them, we created their democracy, and then we help them become this, you know, economic power. It's this big brother kind of, you know, benevolent imperial empire view that's held, unfortunately, by most American journalists. Now, I guess ending on a more positive note when it comes to this issue, I mean, in 2020, as you both note, the South Korean military publicly apologized for what was done to the citizens of Gwangju. Would either of you like to comment on that? Do you think that uh, there has been a, a sort of attempt to reckon with this history. Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, uh, at, just at least one time they should do, and that happened. And But uh, people were um, happy about that. The victims and survivors of Gwangju Rising was happy about that decision, the... the apologized from the military, but at the same time, it wasn't enough because what they were looking for was Chun Doo-hwan's apology because uh, this has some, some historical uh, context, but Chun Doo-hwan has, he symbolized so many things and he has, you know, his supporter behind him. And his supporters is the one who made some conspiracy theory about Gwangju uprising. So Chun Doo-hwan, if he apologized about the Gwangju uprising, and if he can make some, you know, he witnessed about what really happened in Gwangju, and that could make a huge change about the Gwangju uprising. But he didn't do that. So military apology was, you know, kind of a big step. But at the same time, people were still looking for some other apology 
from the Chonduhuan. And when Chonduhuan passed away, um, what people were really, really hate was those, those kind of thing. He passed away without any words about Guangzhou uprising. And not, not just any words, but he made a lot of, um, you know, fake, made, made some fake news about Guangzhou uprising in his um, memoir, his own memoir. So what he only did was made some conspiracy theory about Guangzhou rising and did an apology and just gone. So, yeah, as a reporter, I uh, sometimes I just thought about uh, Chen Duhuan's death. It's really heartbreaking. And I even cried and called team because I was so uh, disappointed by the fact that he just passed away without any, any apology uh, what he made. We didn't call him a uh, former president because he was a dictator. But at the same time, he had that power. You know, he was the one who created a lot of official documents about Guangzhou rising. And he had some power until he, he became, you know, the former president in South Korea. And he used that power at the last moment of his life. He made you know, that fourth memoir about Guangzhou rising, he put a lot of effort about make some lie about Guangzhou rising. That was really disappointing. So that's why a lot of reporters who dig into this kind of Guangzhou rising really disappointed about Sun's decision about not making any apology. No, it's, it's, it's really, I, I was just going to, I was going to say, Tim, it's really tragic for uh, the, the people who have lived in the shadow of this, the survivors of it all, uh, because, you know, they deserve their justice and, and they deserve to have, uh, you know, uh, someone like Chun be held account for this. Well, you know, he was arrested and tried and, and uh, convicted uh, for. It was treason, right, Injong? Yeah, the, yeah right. the, the charge was treason, mm -hmm. uh, but there, there was never any evidence no evidence has surfaced and then probably it was all destroyed of who gave the actual firing orders. You know, that's never been discovered or found. Uh, but, you know, so, so uh, what, what I was going to add before was that after Chun died at his memorial, his widow apologized for some of his wrongdoing, but then a spokesperson for Chun Duan's said that apologies does not apply to Guangzhou, does not apply to the Guangzhou uprising and the massacre. So they pointedly said, no apology to you, even when he was dead. And so that, that was just so insulting and just so heartbreaking. Like she's like Injong said, it was so sad and really, really angered people because you know owning up to your crime as such a tragic, terrible crime, owning up to your responsibility is very important. In well, South it gives Korea, people closure. It gives people closure, but also, you know, in South Korea, there has been four presidents tried and convicted for crimes when they, you know, and, and that's pretty unusual. Not, you know, that's, that's, the, that's true democracy. Uh, you know, it, that does not happen here in the United States. We do not hold war criminals responsible. They're, they're, they're celebrated. 
And, and, and so that's a huge step to try four presidents. That's amazing. Two of them are still in jail today. Huck and Hay and, and Im, Im Young Buck, they're both in jail convicted for what they did during their time in office. So there's a, in Korea, there's been an attempt to reckon, reconcile with the past. And, and you know, some people who were involved have made that kind of apology and have come forward, but not this guy, not Chun Doo-on. And, and because it's so painful that it's, it's really, it really strikes at the heart of what, you know, reconciliation means in, in Korea, because people have overcome a lot to do that kind of reconciliation. And also, um, um, besides his memoir, um, there, is a, there are a lot of evidence about um, when he was a president of South Korea in eight years, during that eight years, the military under Chun, they just, um, just made the documents about Guangzhou uprising, and sometimes they, you know, uh, eliminates eliminated some of the documents. There are so many evidence about that. So because of that, there are lack of evidence because of Chun's doing in when he was a president. So that is why we argued that in the uh, in our article, U.S. government should, you know, classify the documents. We said that there are some critical documents that the U.S. should release, uh, much like uh, we pointed out that uh, 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 Obama, President Obama had done this with Argentina in, in around the dirty war in Argentina. Um, and there is actually, if you go on the CIA database for declassified documents, there is a section there about the Argentine dirty war. You can look up these documents which have been declassified government to government. And that's something the United States should do because we are the, the United States today, still American general has command of both the US, the, has command of the US Korean military in times of war. US is in command. It's a U.S. run command. And so we have, you know, we're part of what has gone on. And so in, in, in terms of Kwangju, we pointed out uh, that, for example, during the uprising, uh, the, the U.S. operated an air base, Kwangju Air Base. It's still there, but at that time it was run 100% by the U.S. Air Force. And so lots of operations uh, were conducted out of out of Kwangju Air Base. And also when the US Embassy uh, told people and Americans and foreigners to evacuate Kwangju, uh, they told them to go to Kwangju Air Base. And they from Kwangju Air Base, they were flown to, you know, out to Seoul and to Japan and other places. Uh, and so we believe that there are records from the Air Force that would show any number of things we don't really know what it could show, but you know they keep close track of of uh, air flights, and certainly during a time of armed conflict like that, uh, there would be records of helicopters uh, that were in the air, you know, just a, a mile or two away, uh, shooting and that kind of thing. There would be there would be records of that in the U.S. Air Force, and there's also 
uh, lots of the military. One of the things that uh, In Jong and, and, and her news network, uh, NBC, discovered in 2017 was, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 there were lots of, uh, they discovered lots more about uh, what the, you know, what the Pentagon knew, but they, they also, this memo she was talking about uh, at this May 22 meeting, you know, stated that they decided that there would be a special communication link between Chundu Wan and a U.S. general named General John uh, Vesey, who used to be the commander in South Korea. And at the time, he was uh, basically in charge of the deputy chief of the U.S. Army. He went on to be the chief, you know, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There was a direct communication link between him and Chun. So, you know, records of that communication would be very important. And and you know, they should they should unveil any kind of communication records during the uprising, especially during the takeover. You know, so and and they have that. They have that. We know we know that there are documents like that. And we actually we tried to I tried to get them. Uh, we file a Freedom of Information Act request on communication between the U.S. general at the time in Korea, Wickham, and Chun Doo-wan and other Korean generals. And the, the, the answer from the CIA was basically, these don't exist. Uh, so, but, you know, Wickham had used many of these documents in his own book. So somewhere they exist. And, and so that's, you know, in reconciliation, you know, I think the U.S. should apologize for its role in Chun, helping Chun come to power, helping crush this revolt, this uprising. Uh, but I think we have a responsibility to show the, you know, the, rec the, the, the very deep collaboration between the U.S. and South Korean military at that time. Because as I said at the very beginning, this was a time when the U.S. military and South Korean military relationship was being reconstituted after about 10 years of conflict over different issues. Uh, and, and like, it, it, it's also, we, we just sort of glossed over it, but it, it is really important to, to remember that these events took place in the context of the, you know, the overthrow of the Shah of Iran and this huge crisis within the US administration at the time to prevent another Iran, because Jimmy Carter had his hands full with Iran. As you, as you recall, you know, there was the embassy was captured and, you know, there's America held hostage. You know, there was, there was on the news every day. And so the last thing they wanted was a political crisis in South Korea at the time. So they did everything they could to make sure that there wouldn't be, and they just, they, you know, they, they just, said, okay, we're going to support this general and, and he'll stamp out any kind of, you know, uprising and, and we're fine with that. And that's, you know, that's the bottom line. Well, I want to thank both of you uh, for coming on Parallaxes. I know I kept you a little bit over time and there was uh, one question I had for Tim about a, a recent New York Times piece and uh, Mark Ames was telling me that you had a few things to say about that. I don't know if you could briefly go over that. Um, well, you know, like 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 Injong was saying, you know, there are serious human rights problems 
in North Korea. And no doubt about it that Kim Jong-un is, you know, uses force against his people. There's a prison system there that's, that's uh, you know, very problematic and, you know, serious abuses of human rights take place. And so the truth is bad enough. But the New York Times ran a story uh, from an organization 100% funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. The US government funded, you know, basically does what the CIA used to do. Uh, and then the NED funded this study. It's a, it's a Korean organization. And they claimed in this article, in this report, that a number of people have been executed for listening to K-pop in South Korea, in North Korea. And, and, and this, the New York Times reported on this report without even naming where the origins of this report that it was funded by the US government. And you know, not exactly a, a neutral party in, in, in this, right? It, it reminds uh, me of how so many New York Times authors work for think tanks, and that's never mentioned in the uh, you know author's bio. <laughs> but I mean, that was a shocking. I mean, you know, I was a business reporter for years, right? And like, you know, every time, you know, you get a report saying, you know, you know, labor conditions, and you know, and you get a report from anybody, and it would make a very strong, you know, findings about one issue or another, right? But you always would say who the who the group was and where their funding came from. You know, if there's a group saying there's no safety problems at UPS factories in the United States, and then you look and the group is funded by UPS, well, then you should say that. You know, <laughs> you should point that that that's basic journalism. The New York Times seems to have lost basic journalism and and running reports like that. It's because people hate North Korea so much that anything goes with reporting on them. The, the rules don't apply, you know? So, but what was ludicrous about that report was that, what was it, three, you know, three, 2018, some of the biggest K-pop groups performed, performed in North Korea, you know, during the peace process, they were there in Pyongyang on TV, you know? And, you know, I think it probably shocked a lot of North Korean uh, you know, uh, watchers, you know, who are in North Korea watching this performance because it's very different than, you know, North Korean, uh, the, you know, performances like that. But they, you know, Red Velvet, it's one of the big popular groups in South Korea. They performed in front of Kim Jong-un. So, and there was no evidence and, you know, there's no evidence that this, they, people have been executed for watching k-pop i mean yeah that's so, that's a pretty extreme claim to make so there should be more evidence for it if they're going to well, make yeah that if you're going to make a claim you know have some evidence you know uh but it's just so easy to say oh north korea is you know so terrible and we don't really care about the you know the source of this reporting i mean kim jong-un has been reported to be dead or near dead about four times in the last five years and you know it's ridiculous People, you know, like even the New York Times will run, oh, so-and-so says, you know, Kim Jong-un may be dead. Well, and then three days later, he appears in public, you know. Uh, it, it's, it's really, and TMZ picks up these reports because they just, they hate North Korea. They've grown to hate it so bad that anything, they'll report anything about it, you know, that they, 
you know, they execute people by sending mad dogs after, you know, them and this kind of thing. It's just like, like I said, you know, but the thing is like South Korea's people fought for democracy during a period of repression that's unbelievable to imagine. The kind of a repression that occurred under Park Chung-hee and under Chun Doo-hwan, it's just, it, it, we can't imagine it here in America because it was so extreme and, and so terrible for people. Frame-ups, huge frame-ups, hundreds and you know, thousands of people sent to these camps and tortured. Uh, you know, it was a torture state under Park Chung-hee. And, and, you know, but people rise up, people, people can have enough. And I, and I think uh, there's a war situation in Korea. There's still Korean wars. Armistice. Yeah, formally it hasn't ended. And that, I'm no. hoping, I, I think you and I both hope that one day we'll get the, uh, the peace, all of us, I, I think. One day. But, you know, in, until that war ends, war is the worst, you know, human rights suffer under war, always. And, you know, we end a war like in Ireland, when the Irish, uh, the, the war in Northern Ireland ended with a with, you know, peace agreement between the IRA and the British, you know, human rights violations, you know, dropped uh, on both sides, right? So, you know, there's models for this. And I think Americans need, there's a kind of racist impulse to, to see, you know, everything as evil but by, by, by in North Korea. I mean, it's Koreans may criticize North South Koreans have deep feelings about North Korea, but it's one people, you know, people don't for people remember it's people don't remember this in America. It's a nation that was united for 5000 years, you know, and there's once it's a single Korean people. It's not a, it should not be a divided country. Well, I want to thank both of you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, Kim, if you could, I just wanted to give you uh, maybe a final word. Uh, if there's anything you want to say to my audience, and uh, I, I guess I wanted to give you a chance. Uh, what do you hope that listeners get out of this uh, conversation we've been having for the past hour or so? Mm. So uh, whenever I talk about this issue to the, my American friends, their first reaction is always same. So I haven't heard about this at all. So yeah, anyway, this is the, maybe this is the first time to you, the audience, is, have heard about this issue. So please care about this. And if you, you know, after this, you if you read about some argument about US government should reveal the, all the documents about the Guangzhou rising, please support us. And thank you for having me. Thanks to both of you for coming back on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim Sharok and In Jeong Kim. And if you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to check out their article at Responsible Statecraft entitled Chun Doo-won's Bloody Gwangju Legacy is America's Problem 2 from December 14th, 2021. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. 
It is you, the listener, along with our few sponsors that help keep this show going, that keep this show alive. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier, with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, and Elliot. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.